And so our scripture this morning is from Luke 19, verses 1 through 7. And it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. We are in week six of our series called Who is This Man Called Jesus? And uh, I'm stoked to be able to enter into another week of looking at another aspect of Jesus's humanity. Um, I, I just love looking at Jesus. I love seeing how real he is, how human he is, how, 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 how much his life is an example for us. And, and one of the main reasons why I'm doing this series is obviously so we can become, uh, get to know Jesus more. We can become a better friend, a better uh, a brother, a brother's sister, we can know him as Lord and Savior, but not just as an idea or as like a theological truth. Um, I, I don't want us to know just more about him as a doctrinal statement or just some concept that we agree to, but for us to actually come closer to knowing to him. And then once we get closer to know him, the real goal then is that for us to actually begin to live and love like him, right? That he should actually change our life. I'm convinced at the core of my being that the very centerpiece of what it means for us, our calling as Christians, is to actually reflect Jesus, to actually become like him, to not just talk about him, to not just think his thoughts, and to not just uh, sing songs about him or, or tell others about who he is, but that we actually begin to look more and more like him and how we live and how we love. Not just memorize his words and, and repeat them to others, but actually becoming more and more like him. And that's what we're going to talk more about today, because his thoughts must become more and more our thoughts, right? We must begin to live and love more like Jesus, where his ways become more and more our ways, where his desires should become more and more our desires, that what he loves, what Jesus loves, should become more and more what we love. The kinds of people that Jesus hangs out with, I'm convinced, should be increasingly the kinds of people we hang out with. We should become to more and more reflect his love in his life. We should be growing to more and more actually live and love like Jesus. And this is a hill to die on for me of what it means to be a Christian and what it means for us to, to not just play church, right? To not just engage in cultural Christianity where we can, you know, come to church on a Sunday and check off the box and have the right doctrinal statements and, and put on a happy face and, and, and shake a few hands and then leave without actually having it impact our lives. And I know that's our heart here at Northview, and it's one of the reasons we're here. And, and so I, I want to look this morning at a quote of one of my favorite guys, Dallas Willard. Now, this is a bit longer quote. And so as we go through it, I want us to remind us, if you go on our front page of our website, you'll see that sermon questions thing. And all the quotes, everything in the slides are there that you can look at. So if you want to go back and look at this one or anything else along with the sermon discussions. But here's a quote from Dallas Willard that I love. It's going to take a couple slides, but bear with us. So imagine if you can, he says. Discovering in your church letter or bulletin an announcement of a six-week seminar on how genuinely to bless someone who's spitting on you, how to live without purposely indulge lust or covetousness, or on how to quit condemning the people around you. So imagine this kind of a seminar a church was holding. Imagine also a guarantee that at the end of this seminar, 
those who have done the prescribed studies and exercises will actually be able to bless those who are spitting on them, and so on. In practical matters, to teach people to do something is to bring them to the point where they actually do it on the appropriate occasions. When you teach a children or adults to ride a bicycle or swim, they actually do ride bikes or swim on appropriate occasions. You don't just teach them that they ought to ride bicycles or that it's good to ride bicycles or that they should be ashamed if they don't ride a bicycle. Similarly, when you teach people to bless those who curse them, they actually do bless those who curse them. Even family members, imagine that, right? They recognize the occasion as it arises for what it is and respond from the heart of Jesus, which has become their own. They do it and they do it well, right? And he goes on, imagine further if your imagination is not already exhausted, driving by a church with a large sign in front that says, we teach all who seriously commit themselves to Jesus how to do everything he said to do. What a crazy idea. We, he said, if you had just been reading the Gospels, especially Matthew 28, 20, which says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, you might think, of course, that's exactly what the founder of the church, Jesus, told us to do. But your second thought might be that this is a highly unusual church. And then, can this be right? Can it be real? When do you suppose was the last time any group of believers had a meeting of its officials in which the topic for discussion and action was how they were going to teach their people actually to do the specific things Jesus said, right? Long quote, mouthful, hope you get the heart of this. And I want to unpack this just a little bit because this, to me, is just the centerpiece of being an apprentice of God, that we actually do what Jesus said. We don't just talk about it. So a few things in this quote stand out for me. I want to repeat a couple of them again. So first of all, he says, in practical matters, to teach people to do something is to bring them to the point where they actually do it on the appropriate occasions. Now, it's amazing that today it seems that if you talk about people actually doing what Jesus said, it's considered like a crazy idea. Like, how can we actually do what Jesus said? He's put out there because for most of us, that's why we're doing this series on the humanity. That's why we spent the last five weeks looking at the humanity of Christ. It was on purpose. If you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to those first few because you have to have the foundation that Jesus wasn't Superman. He wasn't this superhero that was impossible for us to reflect, but he actually came to show us the life that he intended for us to live. And so we are called to actually follow and live and love like Jesus. And to do it spontaneously on the appropriate occasions, not in that WWJD way we looked at a couple weeks ago. He then says this, and I want to repeat this again because it's such gold. He says, you don't just teach people that they ought to ride bicycles or that it's good to ride bicycles or that you should be ashamed if they don't. Similarly, when you teach people to bless those who curse them, they actually do bless those who curse them, even family members. They recognize the occasion as it arises for what it is and respond from the heart of Jesus, which has become their own. They do it and they do it well. And there's so much gold here for us. So often in the church, we have the mentality that a good message is like a challenging one or a good message is one that impacts me or, or that it moves me or that it makes me think. 
And while all these things are good, it's, I, I hope I, that my message impacts people and I speak and it moves people. But honestly, any of those things, it's kind of like the like button on Facebook, just saying like, like, that's good, that was wonderful. It doesn't actually mean much. I mean, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but I'm not here to just be something that enjoys. The purpose of a message, the purpose of what we speak in our lives isn't just so that we enjoy it or that it moves or has an impact, but the purpose of us being a follower of Christ is for transformation, not just information. And maturity in Christian circles is so often measured by information rather than transformation, by how much we know rather than who we're becoming. We're often far more interested in believing the right things and having the right answers than being transformed to actually become more like Jesus and how he lives and loves. And Dallas here is saying it's not enough to convince someone that they ought to ride a bike or that it's good to ride a bike or that they should be ashamed if they don't. I mean, how many of us as Christians have had shame and fear be the primary motivators in our Christian faith, where we feel shame to do something or that we feel that we have to do it instead of understanding who Jesus is and why he did these things? But as Christians, we should be known for actually doing the things that Jesus did. That shouldn't be a crazy statement. That that's what it means to be an apprentice, is to actually be like him. We should live in love like Jesus. We should be blessing those who curse us, even family members. We should be greeting people on the street that we don't know with his love. We should be a calming presence whenever a tense situation arises. We should be loving with a supernatural love, bringing healing to those who are hurting, sharing his love with all, especially the poor and the broken and the lost. We should be hanging out with sinners and those that religious types find disgusting. We should be living a sacrificial life for the sake of others, and we should be people who deeply care for one another. We should be reflecting the life of Jesus. And so how well are we doing on this as a church? Well, if you ask the world around us, we not, might not be doing so well. David Kinneman, he's the head of the research firm Barna, if you've ever heard of Barna Research Group. And a few years ago, he released a book called Unchristian. And in that, he did a major study in which they asked non-Christians their perceptions of Christians. And the, the, the answers maybe aren't surprising, but sadly, they're, they're very real. And so, again, this isn't necessarily what Christians are. It's how Christians are perceived in a national study by non-Christians. Number one response the, uh, agreed to by, by non-Christians, 91% of respondents declared that Christians are anti-homosexual. The first and most important thing that were described about Christians, anti-homosexual, went into the study. Number two, 87% of respondents said judgmental. Number three, 85% of respondents said hypocritical. So right there, there's the top three answers of how Christians are judged in the world. And this was about 10 years ago. If we did it today, probably add anti-science, probably add nationalistic to it, whatever you want. It's going to be, it's, but it's going to be the same thing of what we're against. But the thing is that Jesus, again, I'm not saying that we actually are these things. Let me state that. But this is our perception in the world around us. But Jesus was never anti-tax collector. He was never known for being anti-Pharisee or anti-government or anti-divorce. Jesus was known for how well he loved the people that he was with, right? He was known by breaking through the customs of his days and turning the world upside down of their values. And so typified by the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the poor and blessed are the meek and blessed are the peacemakers. Most of all, he was known for the radical way in which he loved others. And our calling is clearly laid out in some of Jesus' final words found in Matthew 28. In verse 19, he says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus calls us to go and make disciples. And that means not just to see people agree that he exists so they can go to heaven. 
Right? That's not what he's talking about here. Or, or to repeat the words of a sinner's prayer. That's not his goal with this statement. He's saying that verse 20, he makes it really clear. He says they should obey all of Jesus's commands. That's what he's looking. Disciples are people that obey his commands, that actually live and love like Jesus. Because his primary command is go and love one another. And how do they do this? Keep reading there in verse 20. What does it say? I will be with you until the end of the age. So the way that they are enabled, empowered to live this life is not of their own strength, but it's completely being rooted in the Holy Spirit and Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And as you read through the Gospels, make sure to read and see God, the God-man Jesus in each line. Don't just look at, at, at the miracles and the big stuff, but look at how Jesus interacts with people. Get to know what Jesus is like. As he says in Matthew chapter 11, we looked at it last week, he said in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I love us. Take my yoke and learn from me. We are supposed to learn from Jesus, to be yoked to him. The picture there is of an oxen being yoked together. And what does that picture show? It's not that we, that we just watch him, but that we go with him and we become like him. The purpose of the yoke is a mature one with an immature one, showing them the way in this picture that he's giving us. Everything I do is what you should be doing. These are Jesus' words for us. This is what it means to learn from him. We should be watching him, learning from him, rooted in him, and our lives should be reflecting his life. His life is an example for us. And as we see more and more of him, our response should not be just to copy him, like WWJD from a couple weeks ago when we talked about that, but it should be to adopt his practices, to experience his life, to be so rooted in him that the work of the Holy Spirit is just outpouring through our lives. I love Dr. Julie Canlis, a great theologian. Uh, she, she says that Jesus is not just a statue to look at or copy, but should be a fountain that we draw from or a fountain that we live out of. And I love that idea because for so often we look at Jesus like a statue and say, let's do that. But she says, no, he is a fountain of life. As David says in, in Psalm 36, verse 9, David says, for you are the fountain of life. He, Jesus is our fountain of life. And, and the point isn't just to copy him, but that we, he is our source of life. The spirit in us, his spirit in us, enables us to do the things he did. So that as we seek to live the life of Christ, it's not just of our own power, but he is our source. We don't just look at Jesus sitting with sinners and go, I guess I need to go sit with sinners. Though there could be good there, but we, we don't just look at him touching a leper and go, I guess I need to go touch lepers. Right? We don't just try and copy everything he's done, but we need to be rooted in him, get to know him, allow the spirit to move into our lives. And so our lives reflect his and that his love pours out of our lives into those around us. Jesus is calling his followers. It's not that we go to church on Sundays and just do church, that we just memorize and repeat things, but that we become like him. That every aspect of our lives is transformed by him. That being a follower of Jesus means that everything we do increasingly should be shaped by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Everything, just like it did for Jesus. And how we pray and how we worship, but just as much in how we hang out with friends, how we teach, how we plumb, how we paint, how we code, how we watch movies, how we raise our children, how we discipline our kids, how we care for parents, how we drive. Everything should be shaped by the reality of who Jesus is. Everything can and should be shaped by Jesus. 
as he is the fountain of life. I, I love Paul's quote of the, of the ancient uh, Greek philosopher in Acts 17. He quotes Epimenides in Acts 17, 28, and he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Right? That Jesus should shape every aspect of who we are. When we look at Jesus, we see that relationship with his father. It shaped every aspect of who he was. Again, from having a meal to healing the sick to hanging out with kids. And that life is available to us as well today. This eternal life, this life of abundance, lived to the full. Where, where instead of Jesus just being that doctrine we agree to or, or a transaction that takes away our sin, he is the rhythm we live our lives by. He's like the drumbeat that, that we go along with. He is the fountain that we live out of where we increasingly see Jesus and his presence permeate every aspect of our lives. This is what we are called to do as apprentices and followers and disciples of Jesus. I want for Jesus, through his spirit, to transform every single aspect of my life. I, I know it won't happen all this side of eternity, and that's okay. we got eternity for it to be in perfection. But I want it to, to more and more in this world, here and now, to experience this reality. And how I spend time with my kids and my wife. And, and how I spend my money. And how I talk about others when they're not present. And how I respond when criticized. How I speak with those I disagree with. I want Jesus to shape every aspect and, and how I drive and how I watch TV or how I celebrate birthdays or how I pray or how I read. I want him to shape every aspect of my life. I want him to be the rhythm I live my life by, the fountain from the source from which I live my life. And when looking at living and loving like Jesus, I mean, there's so many things we can look at in his life and we can learn from, whether the incredible healing, his sacrificial death, his, his miracles, the raising the dead, the walking the water. There's so many things we can look at. But this morning, I want us to take a few minutes and just look at one of the more simple things he did that was just what he did all the time. And that's, I want us to look at how he pursued people, of how Jesus was utterly at his core, always having his eyes open and spirit open to listening to the spirit of what the Lord of the Father would be encouraging him to do and reaching out to people around him. His posture is always outward. So let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And here we have the story where Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, this is kind of a summary statement of Jesus' ministry here. I mean, it, it doesn't just cover days. This covers months and potentially even over years of time. It's kind of big picture summary. When Jesus was out teaching and preaching, it says, what does Jesus see? He is moved with compassion there in verse 36 because he sees the people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus wasn't trying to save souls, but he was caring for people. He saw, as he looked out, he saw people who needed him, who needed care. And then he goes and tells his disciples, you need to go out and care for them and pray for more people to go care for them, right? Jesus' heart is to care for the people, care for them as though a shepherd would care for sheep. For another example, look at a few stories this morning. Mark chapter 2, this is the calling of Matthew. Starting in verse 13, he says, he went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, look at how Jesus is looking out for other people here. 
Notice his eyes. He's in the midst of a crowd, people all around, and yet in the midst of this crowd of hundreds of people longing for his attention, the Spirit kind of speaks to him, and he sees Levi in the midst of the crowd of all the people, right? And he pursues Levi. And somehow, the crazy thing is he pursues Levi and singles him out. Levi actually gets up and follows him. Verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So now we see Jesus having a meal at Levi's home. The terrible, traitorous tax collector. And Jesus is there with all these other sinners, and he's just chilling with them, having this meal, reclining at the table. And again, this is one of my favorite pictures of Jesus here, where he's spending an evening with these guys, but the rejected of society, there's no teaching, there's no preaching, there's no healing happening, but it's an extended evening and a meal. The whole evening is spent just spending time with these guys. And in verse 15, it says, many tax collectors and sinners were with him. Why were they there? It says because they were following him. Even sinners and tax collectors were following after Jesus. They were curious by this guy and amazed by him and wanting to spend time with him. And why? Because when they were with Jesus, they wanted to be near him. They experienced a sense where they were loved, where they were accepted by him in a way they had never experienced before. And they were attracted to the way in which he loved them. He was so different from the world around them and the religious types at the time. Now remember, the events of the Bible are just highlights of the Gospels. In the Gospels, we just get a couple little events. Often, there's a weeks, months, or even years in between the events that we see portrayed in the Gospels. And so it's only a tiny little picture of what Jesus is like. In fact, John tells us that at the end of his Gospel of John in chapter 21-25. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room to store all the books that could be written about it, right? So we know that Jesus is doing this all the time. It's not just a one-off thing that he does, but it's consistent. And so here's another one of my favorites of Luke 19, chapter, chapter 19, verse 1. It says that Jesus, he entered into Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. This is our passage that John read for us earlier. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. This is the Pharisees and the others. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. So I love this again. Notice the parallels to our last story. Jesus is in a crowd of people trying to get his attention, right? Everyone wants to be with him. Yet he's always listening to the Father and waiting for the Spirit's prompting as he's caring and loving. And in this space, in the midst of a crowd, this time Jesus points him. Just like to Levi, this time he points him towards Zacchaeus. And in the midst of all the people, he sees Zacchaeus in a tree. And the Spirit even gives him Zacchaeus' his name. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'll spend time with you, right? And, and of course, the, the religious types are all angry and up in arms. That Why does he hang out with sinners and not us? And, and, and so that's what's shown in the text. But again, when you read a story like this, you don't just ask what's there, but you have to ask what is not there. Like, what is the rest of the story? 
Because it just ends saying he went to be with them. But what we know then is that Jesus went to stay in his home. Jesus would have spent hours, probably the night, with this guy Zacchaeus, enjoying the whole evening with this one guy and probably his family. Jesus pursued him. And so we guarantee you Jesus would have heard his story, would have listened to about his family and got to know them and, and heard from them. And Zacchaeus, the next day, how would Zacchaeus have felt about this? His life would have been turned upside down. He would have felt so loved and seen by Jesus that his whole world would have been turned upside down. And this is how Jesus does it. He spends time with people. He pursues people. He listens to the Spirit, engages, and follows him as he reaches out and cares for other people. And it's often over meals, frequently having people stay the night, often through hospitality. Jesus is always listening to the Father, asking the Spirit to lead him as to where he should go and who he should speak with. And who he should care for. Another great story is found in Matthew chapter 8. And he says, as Jesus comes down from the Mount of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, He comes down from the mountain, and great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Now, to a leper. Now, this story is insane because Jesus would have grown up being terrified of lepers, right? No one went near lepers. No one went anywhere near them. And when this leper comes forward, Jesus doesn't recoil in any way, but he reaches out and he touches the leper. Now, again, imagine the, this from the perspective of the leper. How many years has it been since this person has had human contact? How many years has it been since anyone has pursued this person? They have been a pariah on society in their entire probably adult life since they've been diagnosed with this or since they got the disease. And they haven't been anywhere near other human beings for this time. They're completely isolated, alone, depressed, and oppressed. And Jesus is probably the first human contact they have had in so long. While everyone else is running backwards away from them, Jesus reaches out and moves towards the person and brings healing. He reaches out in compassion and love and brings healing. Again, this is Jesus reaching out to the leper. Or another great story coming out just after the resurrection. One of the most important days in Jesus' life is the day of the resurrection day, right? Where he's out hanging out with all these people in this time. And you think there's so many things that Jesus should be doing on resurrection day, right? Few more important days than the day he rose from the dead. But look how Jesus spends his time. Luke 24, verse 13, he says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. So we have these two followers who are going there, and they're one of the hundreds. We don't, they're not the disciples, the twelve. They're out walking, and I love that phrase, Jesus drew near and went with them. I mean, that just so summarizes Jesus and how he engages, right? He draws near, and he, he goes with these guys. Verse 16. Notice the cheeky way in which Jesus does this. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? As they stood still looking sad, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? Right? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And they keep talking for hours as they walk miles and miles and miles together, right? And Jesus is, is just listening to these guys and loving on them for the whole seven mile walk that they go on. Now let's pick it up in verse 28. It says, So they drew near to the village where they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going further. Again, he's just messing with them in some ways. But they urged him strongly, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, 
For it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So come have a meal with us. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanishes from their sight. So after walking the whole day with these guys, Jesus then spends the rest of the evening with them as well, shares a meal with them. Now, how would these followers have felt having spent the day and the evening with Jesus? They would have been so loved knowing that the Savior, that God pursued them this whole time. And these aren't even the 12 disciples. And this is the most, one of the most important days of Jesus' life. This is resurrection day. There's so many important people for him to see, important things for him to do. And he wastes the, almost the entire day on these two nobodies. Right? At least that's how they could have been, felt that they were perceived. That's how others would have felt about them. Why is Jesus doing this? Because he's listening to the Spirit and he's pursuing people because his goal is that he loves people and he wants them to know how loved they are. And he felt that he was supposed to pursue these ones. He follows the leading of the Spirit and pursues and loves and cares for people and just wastes his time on them, right? It's so good. This is how Jesus lived his life. And there's countless other stories with the Gospels where Jesus does this on a daily basis. And again, we only have a few stories of the Gospels. This was just normal for him. You could look at Mark 10, the story of the rich young ruler in 17 to 24. And there's this great verse. It's so beautiful in 21 where he tells him, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. Right before he asked him, that hard ask of go and sell, the right before that says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Or Mark 10, 13 through 16, just before that story, the story of Jesus with, the, with all the children that, that, that are coming to him, the disciples trying to keep them away. And it says Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, let the children come to me. And he is covered with children that time and showing them and saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Or in John chapter 4, most of the chapter is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And you see Jesus spending hours with this woman, again, who's rejected by society. And then even after spending time with her and loving on her, he then goes in the village and, the, and he's planning on going through, just passing through. And instead, they beg him to stay with them. And so Jesus stays days with the villagers of Samaritan village, the most hated people in the whole region. And Jesus spent days with them, loving on them, pursuing them, caring for them as the Spirit leads him. And so we see that Jesus overwhelmingly cares for the people around him. And so the question then is for us is, do we follow the Spirit's leading like Jesus and actually care for the people around us, right? Do we have that? Is that what marks our lives? Is the way we listen to the Spirit and the, the Father's prodding and Jesus' guidance and care for the people in and around us in our lives and those that we, we know and don't know? Because caring for others marked the life of Jesus. Whether it's Zacchaeus in the tree, whether it's the woman with the, you know, with the, the issuance of blood that, that touches him, whether it be uh, the tax collectors and the sinners who are there at, at, at Levi's house when, when he's having that meal with them. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on of people that Jesus pursues and loves on and cares for. You know, over the years, one of Northview's greatest strengths has been the way we care for one another. I mean, Pastor Steve has been an incredible model of this to all of us, and this has been something that our church is known for, and this is one of the biggest reasons why Sarah and I are here at Northview, is because of the way this church has cared for us and cared for one another over the years. But most of us that are here today, we probably remember about, I don't know, about 18 months ago, 
right? You might remember that there's this whole event called COVID that happened, this pandemic stuff that happened. And during that time, something happened during the midst of that, we're not just here, but across the world where people began social distancing and potting up and kind of getting into their safe groups that they thought were comfortable. And we spent almost 18 months or now over 18 months creating new habits of withdrawing from others and finding our little safety bubbles away from other people. And some of these habits were healthy, but many of the habits really turned into what would be called self-centeredness, right? Really focusing on, on our family, what's going on with us. You know, uh, I, I was spending this past week, I, I got to hang out with someone, incredible family of this church. And, and as I was sitting with them, they were saying, you know, that before COVID hit, they were, inc they're, they're an incredible family, generous as can be and loving with their time and their resources and everything. They're saying before the pandemic hit, they were really generous financially with their money, with their time and others. And they are, it's true. That's who they are. But they were, they were telling me, you know, in the last 18 months, it's like they put their hands around their finances and their family. And it's kind of they wrapped around and said, this is mine. I need to protect what is mine. And this is for an incredibly generous, outgoing family. Right? And I feel that that's something that just so defines what's happened to so many of us in the season. Where we've gone to this place of, of, of just kind of moving into this place of this is mine. And, and St. Augustine, almost 1,700 years ago, in his book, The City of God, he wrote about this idea where he called sin in, in curvatus in sea. That's the Latin phrase they used to describe the idea of being curved in on oneself. Right? And I feel that in this time of the pandemic, not just as a church, but nationally, we've gone through this time where we are all in curvatus in sea. We are curving in on ourselves. We're protecting what is ours and saying, this is mine. And it's understandable why we've done it. I mean, some people are doing this their whole lives. We're just kind of always in that place of unhealth. And, and some people, you know, I want to say it's not all. There's, there's many I've seen here that have done an incredible job, many of us, and actually seeing the opportunity that this pandemic creates. And we're loving and, and experiencing God in this kingdom in beautiful ways. But for so many, the great toilet paper shortage of 2020 perfectly describes how we've responded in this season. Right where he said, mine. I'm going to protect what's mine. Everyone else is grabbing toilet paper. I'm going to grab three things from Costco and throw it. When we arrived in America, we were shocked of the house we were staying in. They let, let, generously let us stay there. We went in the closet. We were, we, were, we were quarantining coming from South Africa. And they had like three Costco things of toilet paper in their house. I'm like, how could they? What's, I, we just arrived on the shore of America. I didn't understand how it was going, right? But everyone's like, mine. We will protect our family, right? Incurvatus and sea became the norm in this time. And we become curved in on ourselves, focusing on our needs and where we're at. And it doesn't help that also during this time, there's been a compassion fatigue setting in the last few years. Where every news item of the day is like turned up to 11. And any issue that we're facing, whether it be politics or vaccines or, 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 or the, or the, the um, what else has been going on? Uh, uh, the stuff with, with, with Black Lives Matter or, or dealing, with, uh, dealing with people of color or gender identities or, I mean, ever, national wars and, and humanitarian disasters. I mean, everything that's going on in the last, last 18 months, it's like every week there's another pandemic of some kind and we're just supposed to be on outrage all the time that we don't even know this week what are we supposed to be outraged about, right? And all of that leads to a compassion fatigue. You combine that with already this incurvatus in sea of us kind of curving in on ourselves and what do we do? We withdraw. We stop trying. We run out of energy for others. We run out of energy. We begin to only keep those close that we can handle. And I don't think this is what God created us for. Because we're not supposed to just be running on our own strength. We're supposed to be running in his. And as a result of this compassion fatigue, some Christians have lacked empathy and, and, and compassion even for other Christians. 
I'll be honest, I've heard so many times in this last year or so, someone mentioned someone that was being sick from COVID, and the immediate response I heard from someone else was, well, did they get the vaccine? Now, regardless of your opinion of a vaccine, is that the first response that we should have for people that are sick and hurting? Did, are they with me or are they with them? That's not the first question to ask. The first question is, ask, how are you doing? What's going on? But yet as Christians, we sometimes struggle to even show empathy to our own brothers and sisters. And it's a hundred times worse in this season because we're distanced. We're doing it from behind a keyboard where for some reason we lose our minds when we disagree with people and we treat them like the enemy behind a keyboard. We can write the most horrific things about people when sitting behind a keyboard instead of being in front of them. And all of this, again, in curvatus and see, we are curved in on ourselves in a way that is not healthy. And Jesus is calling us out of that. People are desperate for connection right now. They're desperate for it. There is no greater opportunity since the moment that I was born until now. I can't say about those who came before me because I wasn't alive. I'm 42. So in the last 40 years, I can think of no greater opportunity in the, in the last 40 years in America for us to be able to live in love like Jesus than right now in a place where people are so desperate for him, so desperate for connection, so desperate to leave behind isolation and the pain. And yet today, people are hungering for this. So many people today, in this church even, feel like that leper that Jesus touched. Where it's been 18 months since someone touched them, or had a conversation with them, or pursued them, or showed them that they were loved and valuable. And they're coming even into this church, and they're just saying, I just need to be cared for. And they're leaving without people being able to feel that they're cared for. And it's not that it's our fault of doing that. It's a reality of the human condition that we are desperate for connection. But there are people that are hurting. You know, I've had the unique privilege of the last 18 months, or last nine months, sorry, that I've been in the homes or, or met with the vast majority of people in this room now, right? That's kind of been my job is hanging out with people. And if I've not met with you, please let me know. I'd like to meet with you. And if you're watching online and you're a regular part of this church, let me know. I'd love to hang out with you too, right? But in doing that, I've heard the story so many times of people in our community who have told me, you know what? I just feel isolated. I don't feel connected. And that's coming from people that found part of the founding church members of this team from 20 years ago. That comes from home group leaders. That comes from new members. It comes from recent people. And again, because it's not just that our church is bad. It's that we are part of this human race. And our response during this time has been distancing. You know, when I was uh, admissions a few years ago, I remember I was counseling a number of, women, of people. And in, 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 in we have a staff team there in South Africa that would be a few hundred strong and uh, I was just meeting with people and, and encouraging them. And at one point, there were a few different people. I think there were four in a row that I had that all were roommates. And I met with each of them individually. And each of these people, each of them told me how lonely they were and isolated they were. Now, a community of four, like hundreds of staff all around the similar ages, they were roommates. And each of them told me at night, they usually spend it alone in the room watching Netflix. Right? Eating their meals in their rooms with the door closed, alone, feeling isolated and depressed. Next person, same story. Next person, same story. Next person, same story. And all of a sudden I realized, you do realize, you're all in your rooms, feeling depressed, alone, probably watching the same show, and all you literally need to do is open the door and connection is right there. Right? That's, and that was before COVID hit. Right? It's only gotten so much worse since then. We're not going to know for a while until sociologists have time to do studies that tell us the true impact that this pandemic has had. Right? But it is massive. And that's why we have to wake up out of these COVID comas. We got to stop being in curvatus and see and open up and be the hands and feet of Jesus and see the people around us. 
We have to take a step in this and get out of those places of, of, of comfort zones and be able to step out and love one another because loving one another should be the single greatest thing that the church is known for. Caring for one another should be what stands out about any single person that walks through these doors should be able to come into this place because they know that this is a place they are cared for. Right? We should be able to do this just as well outside with friends and family and strangers. But if we can't do it in here, then we definitely won't be doing it out there. This should be what we are known for. And right now, I'm just being honest, it's something we're struggling with. It's something where we're lingering in this place of incurvatescency, being curved in on ourselves. And we have to open our eyes and see what the Spirit may speak to us to engage in care and love for one another. God is calling us to love like Him. And it's the opposite of incurvatescency. It is opening up and pursuing the people around us. And this goes for the extroverts that have this, to whom this comes naturally, right? Lisa Porter, you're amazing. I love the way you do it, right? It's just fantastic. And cares for anyone who's a watcher. It's absolutely amazing. We can't all be as amazing as her. Uh, we can try, but we'll fail. And, and that's, that's great, and we can do that. But it's not just for the extroverts that just naturally talk. Because right now, what often is the biggest struggle is for some of our people that are struggling and feeling isolated and feeling alone. And we're living in this incurvatus in sea time where we're just curved in on ourselves and we're waiting for others to pursue us. The problem is, if we're all waiting for others to pursue us, we're going to be really lonely, just like my friends sitting in their rooms watching Netflix. And for those of you that are struggling and waiting, who will talk to me today? I want to challenge you. You're living in incurvatescency. It's time to open your eyes, look out and say, Lord, who can I go connect with? Whose story can I get to know? How can I not live in the midst of this place of, 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 of incurvatescency, of being curved inwards, and open up and see what you're leading me into, Lord? And so I've talked about this before, and I'm not going to stop talking about it, but we must care for one another well. It's just a baseline for what it means as a community that we do this. We must be interested in one another's stories. We must pursue one another and hear each other's stories. Especially if it's someone we have an issue with or a struggle with or someone we've judged because of whatever reason. Either they don't wear a mask or they do wear a mask or they said this thing to me six years ago and I'm still holding on to it. Whatever it is, we must come through that and pursue one another and get to know their stories. You know, we had to do it during COVID, and I hated it so much. But remember, for like months there, every day at the end of the service, we would say, now please go out the back doors. Right? I hated that because we just rushed out. But, you know, we stopped doing it, thankfully. But yet in our hearts, I think many of us are still in the same place. It's just we come to church, we do church, and we go. And God is saying, this is part of our family that you've been called to in the season. If you're online, we want you here whenever possible because we want to be a family. We want to engage with one another and love one another well. And so here's my challenge. Let's ride the bike today and not just talk about it, right? Let's actually just ride, get on the bike and ride it. And so before you walk out of this room today, I encourage you to scan the room. Just look around during worship or after praying or right as we finish. Scan the room and just ask the Holy Spirit the simple question. Spirit, who can I speak to today? Just that simple. And wherever your heart or your heart lies upon or the spirit impresses, just go talk to that person. Ask them how they're doing. And then do the same thing next week and the week after that. If you don't have anyone that comes upon your mind, that's fine. Just go pick somebody. But let us take action. Let's actually step out and live in love like Jesus this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Jesus, that you've called us into community. 
You called us out from places of isolation and depression and oppression, Lord. You saw the crowds that were like sheep without a shepherd, that were, that were lost and, and struggling, and you came to care for us, Lord. And you put us in community. And so, Lord, may we be able to, to experience that reality more and more of what it means to live and love like you here in this community. Yes, outside the walls as well. But Lord, may you impress upon our hearts what it means for us to step outside of our shell, to step beyond, to open up. If we're curved in on ourselves, to open up and open our eyes to you, Lord, and what you are doing in our midst. Jesus, we want to love like you. We want our lives to reflect you, Jesus. Oh, Father. Work in our hearts. If we're struggling this morning, we're at that place of where we're definitely curved in and, and we're, we're just waiting for everyone else needs to pursue me. Lord, I just pray you bring healing to their hearts this morning. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to step out, to obey you, Jesus, to follow your commands, and to engage, Lord, in love the way that you call us to love.